That's the first time I've been introduced by a video, so that's, that's, that's great. Jan and I are Californians, and we moved here five years ago to be with family that live right here in Minneapolis. We're so Californians that I just, I just looked this morning, and on the front of my Bible, there's an In-N-Out Burger sticker. Uh, those of you that have never been to California don't understand In-N-Out, but it's uh, the best burger in the world. And so, <laughs> we, uh, we moved here five years ago uh, to be around family. It was important for us to be here. Uh, we've been married 46 years, and uh, we've, we're church planters. We, we planted in Southern California 40 years ago. In 1983, Jan and I planted the Foothill Vineyard. It was church number 23 in the vineyard system. There are over 600 of them now in the United States. And so we're one of the oldest churches, and we're going back Next week, this week, uh, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the church that we planted. So we're excited about that. One of my regular prayers recently has been, Lord, teach me something about myself today that I don't know. I read that in a book, and I thought, well, I'm going to try that. I, I'm... I've discovered over the last six months that that's a very dangerous prayer because God loves to answer that prayer. Teach me something about myself today that I don't know. And so I'm having a wonderful, awful time with that prayer because he's answering it. And at my age, at 76, I've discovered that the things that I don't know about myself... I don't want to know about myself. <laughs> they're, they're ugly. They're pretty deeply buried. And I would prefer to keep them buried. But I've also discovered that when God reveals those things to me and answers that prayer, that somehow in all of that, he heals me. And he makes me more like Jesus. And so all the pain and discomfort is well worth the, the Christ-likeness that seems to be formed in me. We're safe with him in control of our lives and yielded to him. And my prayer today would be that God would teach each of us something that we don't know about ourselves. Now, would you be willing to say, yes, Lord, do it in my heart? <laughs> you see, it's one thing to pray, and it's another thing to say, yes, Lord, do it in my heart, my heart today. Teach me something that I don't know about myself. I've always wanted to teach this parable of the, of the lost son with Rembrandt's famous painting that he painted in 1669. You've probably seen this. It's currently hanging in the Hermitage Museum in Russia. Catherine the Great acquired it in 1776. Now, in order for the Netherlands to have given up this painting, there probably was some type of a, a conflict. Uh, 
because the great works of art in the world often change hands during war. They're stolen. America made some inc incredible acquisitions after World War I and World War II. We've got paintings in our museums today that belong somewhere else. You can tell as an art teacher, as an art historian, I'm a little upset that they haven't been returned. <laughs> but the Netherlands owned this painting, and Catherine the Great of Russia acquired it and then hangs in their museum where probably few even have the access to see it. It's a large painting. It's eight feet tall. It's six feet wide. The characters in it are the characters of Scripture. And this is to be considered by many art historians and art lovers to be the greatest old master work of art ever painted. <laughs> wow, that, that's way up there as far as the great works of art. And we'll, I'll refer back to this several times. Luke 15 consists of three stories, and you have to understand that all three of them are connected to one story. There are two stories before the story of the lost son. Jesus is responding to something that he heard the Pharisees and teachers of the law kind of mutter under their breath. Jesus heard it. And what he heard was, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so what Jesus does now is goes through an entire teaching to them and to teach them about a God that they don't know. Jesus regularly approached the marginalized, the broken, the dysfunctional, the sick, the hurting people of his community. He oftentimes approached them and said, hey, listen, I'm having a few people over for a snack after dinner. Why don't you grab a couple friends and come on over? My mother, Mary, makes a really mean cherry cobbler, and I'd love to share that with you. That was Jesus' normal daily routine. And evidently, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had noticed it enough times to where they have to say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So now Jesus is going to teach them about this God that they've never met. Jesus is aware that their faulty behavior is due to their faulty thinking. It's always that way. It was that way 2,000 years ago, and it's that way today. Our thinking is a blueprint of our actions. We normally act according to the way that we think. And if our thinking is faulty, our actions will be faulty. And Jesus knew that the problem with the Pharisees is they didn't think right. Their thinking was all messed up about who God was and, what, and who he was. 
And so now Jesus tells three stories. Now recognize that what he does is he teaches in this, this style of hyperbole, which is exaggeration. Jesus is going to make some exaggerations, and you'll see them in the stories, in order to make a point. And for time restraints, just let me tell you the first two stories. The first one, a warm-up. He says, pretend you have a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep gets lost. You're going to tuck the 99 into a safe place, and you're going to take off and look for that lost sheep. You're going to search and search and search day and night. You're going to just exhaustively search for that sheep until you find that sheep. Notice the exaggeration here probably. You find the lost sheep and you call all your friends and neighbors together and tell them, I've lost my, my, lost my sheep and I've found it. Rejoice with me. Have a party. And it says that there's this great celebration because this rancher found his sheep. And then I think he gets up real close to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, in the same way. Now, when Jesus says, in the same way, we need to listen to him. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing. In the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. And so what he's doing is he's introducing the Pharisees to a God that loves repentance that loves people, and that repentance brings great delight to God, it says here. Matter of fact, he says that there is so much delight in God that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Now, Jesus was well aware that there were not 99 people around that didn't need to repent. <laughs> but he's giving the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees kind of a place to stand. Oh, that's, that's, that's me. <laughs> yeah, they're sinners. I don't need to repent, is what he's saying. You see, the, the, the religious leader says, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, okay. Yeah, there's rejoicing, but I'm okay. You see, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to repent. I'm okay. The next story, a woman has 10 coins, loses one. And it says she searches night and day. She sweeps the floor. She finds that coin, she, that lost coin, and she calls all of her friends together and says, I've found the coin. Rejoice with me that I found this coin. And then Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Wow. Repentance delights heaven. Repentance delights God. 
He, he party. It's kind of like he celebrates that. He, he has a party over that. Have you ever thought that heaven is this place of somber seriousness? I see heaven as a great, big celebration, loud, exuberant, shouting and clapping and singing and yelling. If this is how people respond to a lost sheep and a lost coin, understand how God and the angels respond to people with a humble, broken spirit of repentance. He's thrilled. Now, repentance is just simply awareness and sorrow for our rebellion against God. All sin is rebellion against God. And then it's followed by a reverse course. In other words, I'm going this way. Repentance means I do this, and I'm going to go this way. I'm going to turn away from that because I'm deeply sorrowful for how it has made God feel. Now, the parable of the lost son. Now, it would be a mistake to think that this story is only about repentance that leads to salvation or the forgiveness of sin. This story, every bit, is about your thinking and my thinking. It's about our faulty thinking as Christians that results in faulty, unhealthy behavior, sin. Because remember, our thinking is a blueprint for our actions. And the scriptures continually talk about the importance of true and right thinking. It, Paul to the Roman church says this in 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Change the way you think. The transformation is changing the way we think. To the Hebrew church, the writer of Hebrews says to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Our thoughts are to be fixed on Jesus. And to the Philippian church, Paul says, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is noble, whatsoever is right, whatever is pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think on these things and the peace of God which passes all understanding will transform your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Wow. So notice how much emphasis is placed on the way we think. What are you thinking about lately? Your thoughts unchecked will always go to the dark places. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> unchecked, your thoughts just don't naturally go to the bright, light places. Your thoughts oftentimes go to the darker places of life. And that's because we have a fallen nature. 
And that fallen nature craves everything ungodly. And that fallen nature impacts our lives. And that fallen nature can press thoughts into our mind that are dark and harmful to us. What are you thinking lately? The story of the lost son in 11 chapter 15 Verse 11 of Luke. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property, his property between them. Now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are confused about this. It was said to confuse them because they knew how the Jewish community dealt with a rebellious son. You see, this son was, was, was thinking nonsense. Basically, his thoughts were, God, Dad, I don't want you in my life. I want my freedom. I don't like your rules. I don't like your regulations. I don't like the work hours around this place. I want freedom. And not only do I want my freedom, I want my share of the inheritance. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> the Pharisees would have gone, what? Not so much that the kids said it, but that the father divided the inheritance between both of his sons. <laughs> they would have said, that's not the way we do it around here. That's not the way that we treat a rebellious son because basically what this son was saying is in extreme disrespect of his father. He could not have been more disrespectful. What the younger son was saying to his father was, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could get my inheritance. Give it to me. And the religious leaders listening to this says, we know how to deal with him. We know how to deal with him. The younger son would have been publicly rebuked if he just asked for his inheritance. He would have been publicly rebuked at the city gate. He would have been told no, slapped across the face, and if he resisted in his rebellion, he would have been removed from the family, viewed as dead, and a funeral would have been conducted for him. And the worst cases, it says in Deuteronomy 21, he would have been stoned. That's how we deal. See, that's the fair. That's how we deal with this kid. But that's not God. And so now God reverses this and goes clear to the other end of the spectrum. The Father represents God. And in contrast to the Pharisees' thinking, his father divided his property between them. Oh, you want your property? Sure, here's yours. One third. The younger son would have gotten a third. The older son would have gotten two thirds because he would have been responsible for caring for the ranch and the farm and all that stuff. Here's your third. Here's your two thirds. And off the son goes. Wow. Jesus is introducing a God of extravagant generosity. 
who lavishly pours out his grace and his mercy on us. A God who patiently withholds punishment that we deserve. God is the opposite of what the religious leaders think of him. Opposite. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus is saying, yes, yes, that's what he does. It says in verse 14, after he had spent everything there, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, a Jewish boy feeding pigs. Let's just say he hit rock bottom. <laughs> That was, the, that was the way that Jesus could say, this boy had hit rock bottom. He was feeding the pigs. Wow. You see, pig pen thinking, when acted on, will always lead us to some form of a pig pen. It's a spiritual principle. It's not mentioned just like that. But you're going to reap what you sow. That's how it's put in Scripture. I put it a little more visually. Pig pen thinking, when acted on, will always take us to some version of the pig pen. I know this through practical experience. I know it. And may I say, so do you. So do you. You know as well as I know that pig pen thinking will take us, will take us to a pig pen. Jan lets me know pretty frequently that I can drift into pig pen thinking effortlessly at times. Man, I just, I'm off. And we are given permission to each other to call each other on that. But see, thoughts aren't necessarily sin. I don't think you can control your thoughts as well as we might think we can. They're going to drift. They're going to drift into the pig pen. I, I'm convinced that my middle name is Tom Pigpen Thinking, done at times. And Jan goes, yeah. Coming home from Costco the other day, Jen and I decided that we were going to write a book. And that book has to do with our thinking. The title of that book is going to be Pig Pen Thinking, or Thoughts from the Pig Pen. That's, uh, I like that one. Thoughts from the Pig Pen. And I'm going to give you a couple of those thoughts that we just came up with and wrote down. 
But I want to mention something that I'd like to be so bold as to say that everyone here this week has thought pig pen thoughts. Now, you have to be honest in order to dig them out. But you've thought pig pen thoughts. Or you've acted on those pig pen thoughts and you're headed towards a pig pen. Or I know because there's over 10 people here that there's a good number of people here right now that are in a pig pen. You've thought the thoughts, you've acted on the thoughts, and the thoughts have taken you to a pig pen. And that's where you're temporarily dwelling. Some of the thoughts for our book are this. My neighbor just got a new boat. Sure looks good sitting in the driveway. Why should everyone else have everything they want? I deserve a new boat. I think I'll go shopping for one after church today. The pig pen of financial distress and the pig pen of discontentment. If my wife would just get her act together and stop nagging me, life would sure be a whole lot better. She's the problem in this family. The pig pen of self-pity, dishonesty, resentment. How about this one? Susie really liked me in college. I really liked Susie as well. We got along real well. We communicated. We shared thoughts. I wonder what life would be like if I had married Susie instead. Listen, every divorce starts with a pig pen thought. I've counseled couples for 40 years, and I've discovered that every divorce starts with a pig pen thought that is then acted on. So, what's the answer to the pig pen? What's the answer? Scripture tells us here. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. There's three steps of getting out of a pig pen. The first one is come to our senses. (laughs) When he came to his senses, it's almost like a light bulb. Wait a minute. I'm in a pig pen. I'm looking around. I'm in a pig pen. He came to his senses, you see. Recognize that a pig pen is not the destiny of a Jesus follower. Stop trying to make the pig pen something other than what it is. It's a pig pen. I've been famous for saying, you know, a gallon of paint could make this thing look pretty good. You put some pictures on the wall, you paint it up a little bit, you hang some curtains. No, a pig pen is a pig pen. A pig pen will never be your destiny. 
If you're currently living in a pig pen, then you have to get out of the pig pen, and the first thing you have to do is come to your senses and recognize that this is not your destiny. And I understand that it is extremely difficult to, to think truthfully in a culture that has thrown out nonsense. We live in a culture of absolute nonsense. And so trying to figure the truth, trying to pull out the truth, trying to extract the truth in a culture that wants to feed lies is difficult. And listen, our enemy's ancient destructive tactic is always to get people to believe a lie. Hath God said... Hath God said... We can't make a pig pen comfortable. We have to get out of it. And we, we just stop trying to make it comfortable. It's not our destiny. And this boy says, wait a minute. We came to his senses. He came to his senses. Step two, I've got to admit I got a problem. <laughs> that problem flows out of my brokenness. And that problem has gotten me into this pig pen. I've thought about this. I've meditated on it. I've dwelt on it. I put action to it. And now I find myself in a pig pen. I don't want to be in a pig pen any longer. That's the name of the game. That's how long I don't want to live in it any longer. And 40 years of pastoral ministry, I've discovered a remarkable capacity in Christians and myself to be dishonest, blame shift, and refuse to forgive. Step three is to get up and get out of the pig pen. That's what he did. So he got up and he went on. The step two includes this idea of repentance. I'm going to repent. I'm going to reverse my course. That's what the boy is doing. I'm in a pig pen. I don't want to be in this pig pen. I want to get out of this pig pen. Therefore, what I'm going to do, I'm going to repent. Notice what he does. He rehearses what he's going to say to his dad. Dad, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me as one of your servants. Mm. He reverses course. He repents. He takes a step towards home. He's going home. The boy doesn't belong in a far-off country in a pig pen. He belongs at home. We belong at home. We need to take this step home. We need to move towards home, which is the presence and the place of God. Because repentance releases power in our lives. Repentance is not just some religious term. When we truly choose a path of righteousness over the path that we were on, we, it says we, we can release the power. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their land and heal their land. See, then repentance releases power into your life. 
That's why repentance needs to be our best friend as Christian. Not something foreign to us. And listen, I understand that there are people here that have been deeply, deeply hurt and wounded by others. I understand that. I've been there. I've been there. You're carrying anger and you're carrying resentment and you're, you're carrying unforgiveness and even bitterness. And that inside of you is eating you up. I know that. Why? Because I've been around this a long time and I've been around people a long time and I've been in the counseling world a long time and I know exactly what some of you are feeling because I've felt it myself. It's time to begin your journey home. It's time for you to take a step towards home. Seeing that's all that you have to do. You just have to say, I'm not going to live in this stuff anymore. I'm going to take a step towards home. You see? It's time to leave the pig pen and come home. You belong with your heavenly father and the safety of his presence. It's time to start home. We are to live in the Father's house, not the pigs. Jesus is about to give the Pharisees a picture of what it means to come home. Jesus is now going to say, I'm going to show you God. This God you have no idea exists. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned. So, he, Excuse me, back up to 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. <laughs> Is that your God? Look what happened. The son takes a step home, and I don't know how long he had to walk to get home, but it just shows a moment's turn. He just turned around and took a step home, and it said the father ran after him, ran after him. Look what we find when we decide to come home. Look what repentance brings. The father's response to the humble, repentant son, to you and to me, when we turn towards him, is to run after us. That's not the God that I grew up with. I grew up in a home that I was disciplined with guilt. And I think my parents learned that from their parents. But when I grew up, I was disciplined with guilt. I was made to feel guilty. And so God became this very vindictive, guilt-assigning God to me. I could never be good enough. I could never live enough good things out. And so I grew up with that. But look how Jesus describes his dad. He runs to the repentant sinner and he embraces him. And the, the language here, the verbiage here is and he kisses him and he kisses him and he kisses him and he kisses him and he can't stop kissing him. Is that your God? Who slobbers all over you with his kisses? who runs to you and embraces you, and now the son goes through this, but father, see, he's got his rehearsed, his rehearsed thing. He says he's going to, his father said, 
It said what he said to his son. I have sinned. Notice the father, the father in the painting is painted. Rembrandt paints his eyes blind. He paints him blind. All he wants is to embrace his son again with intimacy and with closeness. This is how God sees you. You're not going to come back to a God who's going to shake his finger at you, who's not going to assign you to the detail, dirty details in order to pay penance. He's not going to do this. He's going to run to you, and he's going to grab you and hold you and kiss you and kiss you and kiss you. Can you imagine what the Pharisees thought of this? Oh, no! That's not God. That's not, that's not God. God is high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. Yes, that is God, but God is also like a mom who welcomes his, her son back and holds him and kisses him and shelters him and protects him, keeps him safe. And the father says, there's a ring and a robe that I'll put on your finger and the sandals. This is the true picture of God. And so he has his son, and he puts a ring on his finger. It's a signet ring. It says, you are my family. You are my family. Look at that ring. That identifies you as my family. And the colorful robe. Oh, and the well-crafted leather sandals. Oh, full restoration. Full restoration. Listen, just as if he had never left. Oh, that's what God does. Just as if he had never left. Look at this picture one time, one more time. If the worship team would come forward, the disheveled son. It's amazing how remarkable that boy looks like me. That is me. That is me. That is you. And that's God who has embraced you and brought you close to him and kissing you and holding you and hugging you. This week when I was when I was praying over this, I, I just sensed the presence of the Lord and I sensed, I, I sensed Him communicating with me. And it's not through my ears or even through my brain. It's kind of in my heart. And, and I had prayed, Lord, teach me something I don't know about myself. And this gentle, soft, embracing voice came to me and it said Tom do you remember when all you wanted was me do you remember when you passionately hungered and thirsty thirsted for my presence you've been so distracted lately 
and I've missed our time. How life can distract us from the important things is remarkable. How we can be distracted. The worship team is going to sing a song, and and what I'm going to do, because I would be amiss if I didn't give us the opportunity to be the sun and humbly respond to God and just kneel before Him. This is an old song. It's 1994, written by a vineyard worship leader. It's called, Draw Me Close to You, Never Let Me Go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You are my desire. No one else will do. Nothing else could take your place. To feel the warmth of your embrace, help me find the way. Bring me back to you. And I think there are times that we just simply need to do nothing else kneel before God. And could I invite you today? You're welcome to come forward or, or even kneel where you are. You're, you come forward. Some of you can't kneel. So, and I just know physically you can't do it. You just, just sit there. But for everybody else, I'm just going to kneel right here. Could we just humbly submit and kneel? before our king.